You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is DJ in clubs, on stage, on the radio, EDM entrepreneur, Pete Tong. Hi, Bob. Okay, Pete. <laughs> Thank you. You're now doing, the, doing these stage shows. You even sold out 202s with Abisa Classics. Tell me about that. Yeah, basically, it's... um. It started by me getting invited to curate a prom. The proms are a series of um, you know, very famous um, season of classical concerts that have been running in the UK for well over 100 years at the Royal Albert Hall. And they wanted to do something a bit more contemporary. They were worried about their audience kind of getting older and older and older, and they wanted to kind of engage with the younger demographics. So they reached out to BBC Radio 1, where obviously, I've obviously been forever, and they said, you know, how about you guys curating, you know, coming up with an idea that might work as a classical concert? So they asked me as a bit of a kind of veteran broadcaster there, and it happened to be a, an anniversary of, of me taking Radio 1 down to a B3. It was like the 20th anniversary, I think, in 2015. So we came up with this idea of, um, you know, curate, you know, putting together a 70-minute a, a show. That was the slot we were given. Um and now, uh, I thought, because I've been there, but not exact that exact time here, I thought the proms were outside. Are the proms inside or outside? The proms are predominantly inside the Royal Albert Hall, and they happen over the course of a month, actually. And it's uh, pretty much every night, two shows a night. And they, they might have done some things, standalone things outside. Right. So anyway, I, I, I'd never done anything like this before. This was definitely outside my skill set. Um, but I was introduced to Jules Buckley, who was a kind of contemporary um, com you know, um, orchestrator and conductor. And he worked hand in hand with a, with a kind of forward thinking, you know, symphony orchestra called the Heritage Orchestra. And they, they'd work with like the likes of the Basement Jacks and Goldie, um, someone that I, I was quite close to. So, you know, we, we, you know, we had this blind date on the phone and we talked about the idea and I, 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 I kind of, got into it with him how it how it would work and then i this is how long ago 
This was 2015. So this was January of the year we did it. And we had six months to plan it. And I basically thought, you know, why don't we play a minute of each one of like all the greatest records of all time and, you know, dance records and Ibiza classics. And uh, he said that would take me like five years to to notate for the 65 players in the orchestra. So we cut it. I cut it down to like 20 tracks. I mixed it together in my studio and I gave it to him. And um, he started to, um, yeah, basically take these tracks from the original form and then work out how an orchestra would play them. And um, the interesting thing was what, we, what was quite groundbreaking is I was able to get him to, to mix tracks together. So we were going to play everything live on stage, no, nothing on tape, nothing. He wasn't following any records I was playing or anything like that. Um, but we were able to do these segments, like 15-minute segments where – we work through like five tunes, but it would be seamless. And even with tempo changes and everything like that. So we, we did this show on the 31st of July. I think it was 29th of July um, at the Royal Albert Hall. It was an appointment. It was a one-off thing that we were going to do. But within about halfway through the first song, 5,000 people in the Royal Albert Hall stood up, started, <laughs> started going crazy, clapping. And we looked around at each other, went some, some magic's going on here. So we got to the end of the show went backstage it was like oh my god what just happened there because literally the, the the entire audience didn't sit down for 70 minutes they just went mad and we had we had kind of down tempo chill out moments in there as well but they still stood up just to be clear if you only had 17 minutes what 70 was the- 70 70 excuse me so we got backstage and it was like oh my god you know like this was amazing we got to do it again but um everything in terms of the proms and the bbc it was all kind of funded and underwritten so it was like no nobody really ever got a bill um, but so it took a while to plan how to take this show out on the road and it took about 18 months. Um, but we announced some shows the following March and we sold them out in a day. Uh, we, we had one Oh two on sale and, and we worked out. That so for we, those people who don't know, that's essentially 20,000 people. Yeah. It's like, it's like the big arenas here, like Staples center or something like that. And, um, we worked out that if we sold the lower bowl, we didn't know like 18 months later what the demand would be like. Um, but we sold it out. We sold the whole place out in a day, and then we were like, "Oh my god, we got to do another one." But like, I think Justin Bieber was playing the next day, and like someone else the day before, so we couldn't get a string of dates. But we ended up at the end of 2016 with a with a show in Birmingham, the O2, and then one in Manchester. All all arenas, sold them all out. Um, made a record that year, um, basically going back in the stu- into the Abbey Road studios, actually, which was amazing, and we recorded the orchestra um we recorded that set we you know we redid it right um did it as a proper record um the the album came out went to number one went gold on the pop chart it was so we were off to an amazing start and here we are um at the end of 2019 we just did nine arena shows in the uk including two two sold out o2s so it's um it's it's me up on stage with with 65 incredible musicians and jules buckley playing a um a selection of you know electronic music dance music that spans back 20 30 years um and for me it adds it was it was really about adding gravitas to these compositions i think in the in the annals of musical history you know dance music producers djs we have a bit of a chip on our shoulder because we're not taken seriously like the rock and roll hall of fame and all that stuff um and and it, to me, it was like, well, this music that was made in Chicago, New York, Detroit, you know, in Berlin, in London, in, in all, all over the world, you know, wherever, um, we can show that, you know, this one finger wizardry that was done by these Detroit guys back in the late 80s, where they had a 
button on one of the early Roland keyboards that says strings. <laughs> right. And they played, you know, this incredible string part that we used to actually be able to go and do it with a, you know, a massive orchestra. Um, it just lifted people. And I think that's, that was the magic of it. Okay. So since there are no, uh, nothing on a hard drive, we used to say tape. What do you actually do on stage? So basically, um, on the live on the live performance side, I'm I'm actually also playing along with him. So you'll see me up there with um with a bunch of turntables and machine and a, and some drum pads. And basically, there there are elements like weighty kind of whooshes and bangs and electronica in in a lot of these productions that an orchestra can't play. So I'm often spinning in a uh, like a stem um, of of some electronics that actually. The, 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 that they can't provide that kind of adds euphoria. You know, I'm adding kind of euphoria and occasionally I'm adding um, extra um, percussion hits and stuff like that. And then, yeah, so and, and a lot of clapping. Okay. So uh, <laughs> what's the press been? And like? I'm kind of playing like the MC, MC of that. Right, right. What's the press been like? Cause you know, there's so much press in the UK and it can be vicious. No, it's been, it's been incredible. I mean, I, I would say, um, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent Touchwood. Um, it's been great. It's, it's. I tell you, I tell you what it is. It's it's it's, it's experiential. It's it's a so other okay, other than the orchestra. Is there a backdrop? Is there you know? La are there lasers? What are you doing? Yeah. So um, on the there's a two versions of the show. The A list version, which is the one we've just done through the arenas. Um, we've built a pretty big production. It's 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 the idea is we take people to Ibiza for one night. You know, we're either taking them back because they've got great memories of it or we're taking them there for the first time because they've never been there. So um, we've built, it's evolved over the five years and it's got a little bit more um, dense and layered as we've picked up material um, and worked out what ideas work and what ideas don't. So, um, yeah, we, we what's going on up on screen, on, on screen um, complements what we're doing on stage. And, and as I said, it, not not this year, but the year before, we it starts with a plane, you know, flying over the audience, right. and we take you to Ibiza for one night. And we we've had, you know, departure boards up from the airport. We've done all sorts of tricks, and um, and and the show climaxes by this pretty special journey um, through the night through Ibiza, and then a bit and and Delt Villa, you know, the classic shot in Ibiza of, of the old town. Um, rises up behind the orchestra and like it gives me goosebumps talking about it but that's, <laughs> that's like the emotional like punch um but we're always i'm always looking at i mean the, um, for the first you know here i am like in my 60th year I've, I've been djing pretty much since i was 14 years old and um you know to be able to do this i mean this i just didn't see this coming you know this was not written in the book you know i'd, I'd I, I always had a day job to kind of compensate for my you know the way my DJing was going. And um, so it's, it's been fascinating. So be able, to be able to do this stuff on that scale, um, I'm, I'm learning a lot and it's a lot of fun. And, you know, you see you you see the technology on stage that, you know, Metallica take out or, you know, U2 or Coldplay or Kanye or someone um, with Ez Devlin. And we and I can, like a couple of years later after they've done it, I can kind of afford it. <laughs> <laughs> so we can get a little bit of that. So we're always like looking to push the envelope a bit in terms of... Um, Every year, as the as the show goes on, we we get a little bit more funding, and we can like add another trick. Okay, so. so you are the driving business force. It's basically your show. 
Well, it's it's me. It's my name at the top of the poster, but it's a collaborative effort. It's. No, um, I'm actually not talking about the creative yeah. oh, end. Sorry. I'm talking about the business end. I mean, does everybody else, you know, the orchestra, they basically show up when it's booked. But in terms of talking to an agent, manager, et cetera, picking out dates, is that all fall on your head? Pretty much. I mean, um, there there is a there is a little – we formed a company as a partnership, um, which is me and Jules Buckley and um, Chris Wheeler, who's the principal of the Heritage Orchestra, and my management company, actually. So a lot of the um, – everything else apart from the show – tends to fall on me and my management um and when it gets to actually doing the show then and or making the or making the records it's very much me and jules um and and yeah yeah the orchestra turn up to play at certain sessions when it comes to actually doing the show obviously the orchestra part increases um because we couldn't couldn't do it without them so and we have have guests you know we have a lot of guests come on so we'll take guest vocalists so who have you had we've had i mean a We've had um, everyone from, you know, John. Like, what I wanted to do because it's because it's just it it appealed initially to the kind of relapsed raver. So it was. So it was. It <laughs> Never was, heard it put quite that way. But I so like if that. you were an eight, if you were eight in the eighties and you were going to like the the clubs for the first time and the raves, you know, or, or all through the kind of rise of the big clubs in the super clubs in the nineties in the UK, you know, you the interesting thing is by two, you know, the late. 2015 to 2020 um you never stopped loving the music you 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 didn't really want to grow older but you got families you got jobs you have got older you don't want to go out till four in the morning anymore but you do come and see pete tong and relive this this thing um so but i but being with my a and r head on it was like i've i've never really looked backwards and done celebratory greatest hits things so i've always been trying to push the envelope forward so for me it was very important you know we'll have classic artists back but I wanted to have um, young contemporary artists performing these old songs. So from the get-go, we had John Newman, um, we had Ella Eyre, <coughs> we had Sinead Hartnett. Um, yeah, but I have had Candy Statton. I have had Seal. We just had Maxi Jazz from um, Faithless come out and join us performing his own song, which was kind of took the thing to a whole new level where you start having the original artists whose music we are playing then come back and perform with us. So, um, so it's a it's a mix, you know. Okay. Some of this, so, but we've had, you know, Becky Hill's almost joined. You know, she's ma- a massive kind of contemporary singer in the UK, and she's done every tour. Um, Beverly Knight is a veteran of you know who went on to be a big star in the theatre. Actually, um, she's she's come back and done it with us. But but then there'll always be the young ones as well. So okay. So any shows booked for the future? Well, the next UK tour is already on sale so that's um we got one big date at the isle of Wight festival next year talking about glastonbury that might or might not happen and then what our arena run again is already on sale for december um we did do it at the hollywood bowl here a few years ago 2017 um it was very expensive thing to do um and we haven't quite yet worked out the model of how to bring it back to america that's the challenge but let's just say forgetting the economics working out uh the below the line stuff just talking about the audience, do you think there is an arena audience other than in Los Angeles and New York for this show? We're, wor- we're, we're working on it now. I think um, I, I my gut feels it's more like an installation. Okay. That maybe it's a celebration of the American electronic story from the late 90s all the way through to, to now, and it, maybe its home is more like something like Vegas. That's Having said that, you know, there is this um, – you know, like KCRW do at the bowl, 
you know, right. where, they, where they do that kind of, un- it's, it's funded by that kind of season ticket right. model where people bring their picnics. I mean, I, I've, I got educated to this a couple of years ago that there is actually a circuit of those places like the Hollywood Bowl. In, you know, right. Mark Geiger was telling me um, that you can do that, you know, probably could do nine, 10, right. 12 of those around the country. So we're, we're looking at that as well. Well, I guess what I'm asking is most people agree that this sound started in Detroit, yeah. but it is never, once it was picked up by the UK and Europe, it has never really faded. We're here, it's going up and down. So today, if you, because you're a worldwide guy, what is the level of the music in the varying territories? Um. Well, I think it went from zero to a hundred over the course of these, the you know, from from the late eighties. Obviously, in the, the UK, it peaked quickest. It became mainstream. It, it moved the needle um, in the charts, in the pop charts. It moved the needle in the major label business, and then it kind of started to kind of collapse in the two thousands. And the rest of the world started to pick up on it. You know, the French got stronger, the Swedes got stronger, the Germans got stronger, and lo and behold, by Coming into to you know mid two thousand five six seven eight EDM you know the roots of EDM kicked in in the US and then the the whole financial value moved over here so you know that again the major labels had hits with Avicii and David Guetta um, Vegas got on board and paid money that was astronomical it was bigger than any fee anyone had ever seen before anywhere in the world so we've gone through that and that's peaked now but and 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 Vegas is still there but it's not um all consuming like it was between 2008 and 2012 13 so um you know only the strong survive now in vegas like the biggest pop stars or the most current pop stars in the electronic world but the and the, but the other right the the, the 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 other rise in value right now is um all the underground guys that kind of that became superstars in ibiza are now traveling around the world and they've got a kind of slightly different model. They're not really having hits, um, but they are bringing huge value to their live shows from an experiential point of view and um, especially on the VIP and the table scene. So that's all moved from gathering around, you know, kind of David Guetta to to starting to gather around like Taylor Us and Solomon and Black Coffee and people like that. So that's quite interesting. Um, but I think the, the general thing with my, you know, record company hat on and my agency hat on, is that um, it's it's actually on the rise again? It's actually the, the 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 economic value around electronic dance music is is going back up again, and um, on a global level. And it's time for a new generation. And it's um it's it's pretty positive. Okay, so you're obviously- and the major labels, by the way, are back into dance music big time. You know, rightly or wrongly, the investment is flying back into dance music because for the. For the first time now, the, the obviously the streaming numbers are actually getting to a significant level where you know the payouts are bigger again. So I, you know, you know my history with with Roger Ames, London Records, FFRR. I, I was I was there at the beginning and where you know where we were having bidding wars in the nineties. You know, hundred grand for this, two hundred grand for that. It, it went crazy, and that and you're seeing that again now in the last twelve to eighteen months that those numbers are back out there again. And major labels are battling each other to get the rights to, you know, the Medusa record or, you know. Okay, you're originally from the UK, but you live in LA now, yeah, right? Yeah, How long ago did you move to LA? 2013. And Fame. why? Um, n- numerous reasons. One, one I, I already I always had too many jobs and there was never a good time, you know, there's never a good time to emigrate. I think 
when I was at London Records, um, 1990, I had my first number one record in America because I'd signed Shakespeare's sister. We had a record called Stay. Um, London Records US had opened, a guy called Peter Kopke and Os- Osman. Right. Osman this Ra- is when it's Ra- still run by Roger Ames. Right, Roger was running the whole thing, but Kopke was the head of the US and Osman was in the mix as well with him. And they were at like, you know, you're you're the future of the label. Come, you know, now's the time to come to America. Um, and you got a number one record, so there'll never be a better time. But I I got onto Radio 1 in 1991 and I had my first child in 1990. So that kind of kiboshed that. Um, and then I, I got basically my, my, I got remarried. My, my second wife used to live in LA. Um, so she always wanted to come back. Is she American or? No, she's Brazilian, but she, she was in that, she lived in LA when I met her and, um, and then got deeper into this WME relationship and, you know, the center of WME, at least back then was Los Angeles. And I thought, you know, with EDM blowing up in America and it's like, if I was going to make the most of that opportunity now was the time. So it was 2013. We went for it. We only, I told my mum I was coming for a year. So yeah, she's how many very kids? Happy with me. How many kids do you have? I've got four and two stepkids, so six between us. Okay, and how many with the first wife? How many with the second wife? Three, Sorry, there are only two wives? Two, only two wives. Okay, so the first two wife- Was yeah. three kids. And okay, then, um, so the first had three, three kids, and the second one, you have one together, and yep. you have two stepkids. Yeah. So what, you know, if you had your first Modern kid in family. 1990, what are your kids up to? They're all in music, actually, amazingly, and I never really pushed them into it. Um, they've kind of done it by their own design. So my eldest, Joe, um, goes by the name of Joe Hertz as an artist. He didn't, didn't take my name, which I quite think is quite cool. And he um, is kind of making futuristic kind of R&B, soulful, bit of electronic influence. Um, he's doing pretty well. On, he's got good Spotify numbers, good Apple numbers, and he... So he's he's doing that. He's writing, producing for other people, and being an artist himself. And he lives where? He lives in London. And okay. he um, is now. Here's the interesting bit. He's managed by his sister, who's a couple of years younger. So my daughter's a manager, and she she got an intern job at um, a Sony label years ago, and then just grew and grew and grew. And her and another guy from um, the label ended up leaving and forming their own. Um, label and management company and plugging company actually called juice box and they run events so she's doing that and she djs as well and they've employed my younger son <laughs> now he's how old he's 21 okay. and now he's like running like training under her and doing loads of stuff as well so and both, the three of them work together that's quite right and does everybody get along yeah yeah they, they, i mean they do, the first yeah. wife the first wife ever get remarried no <laughs> that's a bit trickier <laughs> okay so uh Let's ask a general question for the uninformed. The uninformed looks at dance music and they hear all the different genres, house, chill. I could go on and on. Can you do your best to explain those different genres? (laughs) Yeah. House you can dance to, chill you can chill to. How about that, Bob? (laughs) Okay. I go that, but there are obviously um, a mob where there's deep house. There's a million other genres and subgenres. Yeah. I get, I I was always a little bit, um, spiky about genres because they get they get mishandled you know so i i don't know if it's if it's good it's good if you like it you like it i don't, I don't know so well, well, the, i mean I, I guess you have to you know label stuff but i don't like the next question is going to be what's what's happening next no no actually that was not <laughs> no, going no, to no, be no, the no, next no, question no. if anything i was going to go backwards and i ultimately will but i guess i will ask a question a different way amongst uh fans are fans into the different genres, or do you find that certain people are only into, you know, drum and bass or chill or whatever? Um, 
drum and bass tends to be a more of a, a narrow thing. Um, back in the day, you, you, you didn't used to, um, the drum and bass crew were very locked into a certain thing. I mean, I, I, I think things are changing now. I, th- I think, um, I mean, I come from a time late 80s in the rave era and like going into the early 90s, we played a bit of everything and we all our eyes, all, all the guys back then, I, were, eyes were opened by those trip, early trips to Ibiza where we saw a guy called Alfredo play all, you know, Chicago house, Detroit house, Italio house, German house and techno and then he'd play in excess, you know, need you tonight at five, six in the morning with the sun rising and everyone, you know, like off their trolley. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> they used to play, he'd, he'd, he'd play like the coolest, most obscure underground record. And then he'd play um, Stock Aiken and Walkman's production of Mandy Smith, who was Bill Wyman's underage girlfriend. Right. And we, again, it was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And Chris, you know, another good example, you know, five underground records. And then um, Josephine, Chris Rea is like, and that was the Balearic spirit. So we and we all came back to London and Manchester back then, and we all opened these clubs, and we started doing the same thing. You know, we get to the end of the night and play Depeche Mode or Chris Rear, and it would be ironic, but it was really cool. So I like you know, and we used to play a bit of Jungle, and we used to play a bit of everything, and then something happened where everyone got in their lanes, and if you ever stepped out of your lane, you got smacked over the head. So, but I'd like to think now with a younger audience that have kind of grown up on Spotify and Apple and streaming services, as they start to step into clubs for the first time, because they're old enough. And if they're curious to come, that they're actually, they're a little bit more all over the place. Cause they've had, um, cause they didn't have to buy the records. No, they can they be could, exposed yeah, to yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm more, I'm more concerned about one. I was thinking coming up here, my pet subject really at the moment is like, everyone's talking about, you know, monetization of music and like you know the, especially in the electronic area there's there's been a couple of great podcasts on resident advisor about um you know the fact that the you know these super, these underground DJs or commercial DJs are, are getting you know tens of thousands some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars and pounds and euros to play but the music they're playing the musicians whose music they're playing are, are getting nothing you know um, and that's there's a real disparity there. Um, so that's that's a, that's a big issue out there in the electronic world. But also, and something that we're going to talk about big time at IMS this year. But I think um, the other thing for me is like where is the the future of the curators? You know, I come from you know my hero was John Peel, right? Um, you Famous know, I, I, BBC yeah, DJ. My my um, my role, I guess, on you know. 25 plus years at Radio 1 has been as, you know, that's been an amazing platform to be a curator. But in the world of streaming and and where the streaming services are basically the curators and they seem to run popularity contests is where did, where does a curator in the next decade find his voice, you know, to move the needle? Hey, listen, there's so many questions in streaming and we can address those. Let's go back to the beginning. So you're in your 60th year. So you were born in 1960. Where'd 60. you grow up? Um, I grew up in uh, Kent. In Dar- I was born at the same hospital as um, Mick Jagger. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, came, a few came, years later. Not, and- not, yeah, a few years later. But he reckons we're related, by the way. I finally bumped into him after all these years. Okay, but, uh, so you're somehow. in Kent. How many kids in the family? Just me and my brother. So it was two two boys, um, and we grew up in a in – um, we were born in Dartford, which is a town, but we grew up in a village in the countryside. Um, and we, I went to boarding school when I was super young. 
Um, my dad was busy. My mom was so okay. Stressed. What did your father do for a living? He was a well. In English, we, we it's a funny name for it called a turf accountant. But he was a bookie, so he he was in the betting business. So he. Was, I have to ask yeah. because when I first encountered your name, I thought it was a stage name. <laughs> No, but it's, it's really your name. It's really Tong. my name, Tong, and it's not. I'm not. My dad didn't run Chinese laundries. Um, no, but would, do you have any idea where the derivation is? Yeah, he 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 um he did a search, and he he he's passed away now. But he told me that it was actually it was all down to Saxon, Anglo-Saxon Viking blood, and there was a lot of tongs in Scandinavia with either like spelt like tongue or with an e right. on the end, and it wasn't really Chinese at all. So um, with all these adverts you see now, like for DNA and like track your right. family tree. I should. My wife said to me the other night, we should do it again. I don't want to do it. I don't want to find out that I'm going to die. Never mind all the crazy die, relatives. Yeah, yeah. But uh, your brother's older or younger? Younger, four years younger. Yeah. And what is he up to now? He's he's in the UK still, and he um he works for a cable company, putting you know cables under the ocean, keeping us connected. Okay, and how <laughs> close are you to him? Um. Not that close. I mean, but close because we've always come together. But it's not like we speak every day, no. So okay. And does he ever ask you for money? <laughs> personal question. Um, I can answer it because he hasn't. No. No, he hasn't. Have you just no, given hasn't. him money because you were successful? No. Okay. How about your kids? Your kids sound like they're doing, are you the type who says, hey, they have to find their own way or are you going to support them till they find their own way or how does that work? Bit of both. I think I've done a lot of learning in life um, and I've done a lot of work on myself on that. And I think going through divorce is really, really tough. Right. And as the man who leaves the house, you know, um, you, you're torn all over the place in terms of um, doing the right thing and, and the kind of guilt trip and then, you know, what do you do when you're with them? You know, and you, you kind of over, you, you definitely overcompensate at the start, but we've got a really good balance now and they're, and they are grown ups now. So it's, you know. Okay. But are they still on the payroll? Um, no, no. Really? One of them actually, actually does work for me a bit. So my oldest does. Well, that's actually, great that they find their own way. Yeah, a lot yeah, of no, people. No, I stopped. No, they don't. Um, no, they all, especially my daughter, um, She's quite entrepreneurial, but my son actually does um, work for the BBC. He he helps actually behind the scenes on my show in terms of some of the um, engineering and stuff like that. So, so you go away to school, what they call in the UK a public school. Yeah. How old are you when you go? Super young, like ridiculous. Like I was, I was like seven or eight or something, and I went to boarding school, and I can't, I kind of blanked out a lot of it. I, I have fond memories of some of it, and then apparently I was very unhappy. And I. So how long letters. did you stay there? Um, till I was old enough to get the train on my own. And then, so I think till I was about 13. Okay. What, 12, happened, what, what happened when you were 13? Well, then I was old enough to get, I could, there was a, cause it actually wasn't that far away. Some kids right. board because you know, they, they board in Scotland cause they live on the South coast. Right. But I, I actually lived, um, very close to, you know, <laughs> right, well, right. 20, 20, 20 miles from the school, maybe right. not even that. Um, so I was a weekend boarder. So I would board during the week and go home at weekends most of the time. It, and but I was so when I got to twelve or thirteen, I was I was old enough to do the train journey on my own. Um, and so, did you stay at that school? Yeah, all the way through till um, what they called A, a levels, so eighteen. And then I never went to uni. I was straight into. Um, you know, I was a pretty studious student until I was 16. I got all my exams. And then I was definitely a more distracted um, student 
in the last two years because my music thing was starting to happen. Okay, your father was a turf accountant. Were you? Were, were, I know. <laughs> I like turf accountant. I've heard it before, but <laughs> I wouldn't have been guy. able to pull it on my rear end. Uh, were you aware <laughs> of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I was actually my best subject at school was maths. So he, <laughs> I, I would work in the back office of his bookmakers um, which is all legal in the uk you well as long as i wasn't out front yeah so i was but I mean, I, being a bookie in the uk being a turf no, account, legal, that's yeah, legal yeah. well you had you had track bookies and you had shop bookies you had to have different licenses so you could be a bookie at the track for the dogs or the horses right um and that was a certain type of license and my dad didn't do that he did right. he didn't do it for horses he did do it a little bit for dogs racing greyhounds but um I, I would go, so on the big race days, like the Derby and the Grand National um, and the Cheltenham Gold Club, I would often go in and work at the back office probably when I was, yeah, 13, 14. And I'd have to, you know, work out, you know, if someone bet 50 quid at five to four and I'd, I'd, I'd do the bet calculations. So, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, how many people were working for him? I don't know, five or six. You know, okay. he, he had like three shops. So, in, and, um, but it, I, it it put me off gambling forever for like that was my next question. No, it, it did because it it was the it did him in basically. I mean, he was there was an era in the in um so we're talking about the late seventies where the independent bookmaker could still make a good living. Okay, but um the 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 chains or the the conglomerates started to rise. So there was a there was two big companies. One was called Labrooks and the other was Joe Coral. And the fact that they had you know once you start having 30 shops 40 shops 100 shops in the uk you could just offset your you know you just balance the right. books where it's really really hard for a guy with three shops to have a bad um grand national where the favorite one you know right and it was always it was red there was this famous horse called red rum and my mum will always and she's still alive um and she and whenever it gets to grand national day and i call her from right. here and say what are we gonna it was the, it's the one time i'll still have a bet right because i wanted to get my daughter into it just to see, just to show her what we used to do. And uh, I rang her this year, just before the race started. And she's still, you know, she's 987 now. Um, but she's still like, I can't do that. You know, it's like, it's, that's, the, that's what brought your dad to his knees, that bloody race. <laughs> so it was like... Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Okay, so yeah. he literally set the odds himself. Well, I guess so. I mean, I think there was there's some kind of I don't know. I've forgotten how it worked. There was some kind of correlation with what was going on on the track because back then on TV you'd see the odds at the course, right. and I think you know they there was literally people going around going, you know, has this horse got all its shoes on? Has this one got its tail on? You know, is the jockey drunk? Is you know is 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 there information, you know, that we're not knowing? And that would, that would how someone would go around and write the odds. And then he would have to look at those odds that were on TV because it was before Betfair or internet or anything right. like that. And he would, um, I guess, yeah, he could, he could give an extra point or take a point away here, there, or do what he wanted to do. So how did he do? It, in the end, it ended horribly. It was, um, he, he, he started having to bet. He was a gambler as well, so he would – he would take a load of bets on and then have to kind of bet against the right. book to, to kind to, of balance right, the right. books. And it just, it started to unravel in the end. He, he, he was a very proud man and he sold, he sold out to, um, to Labrooks or Joe Corals. I think it was Labrooks. And then he went, um, he never really recovered from that. Actually He's, he went into, he then, me and him, him and my mum bought a hotel and they went into the hotel business. Just one big, Big, quite big hotel in in the town Gravesend, and um, but the idea of serving other people and just he just got very depressed about it and he was he was drinking too much. So, okay, yeah. did he sell out to whichever one of the two companies it was because he saw the future coming or because he'd lost so much? A bit of both. <laughs> okay, but there was enough money to buy this hotel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how long did they own the hotel? Um, he. He died in '93, so um, we we probably had it another year. Like we were winding, right. had to wind it all up. So from from yeah, late '70s to '94, probably. And other than him disliking it, was a good business. I think it was good for a while, and his grand his father did it, and it was so. I think from the you know after the Second World War, there was probably twenty years where that was a very good business to be in. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So what exactly put you off gambling? It's just it's weird. I just there's not. I could. I mean, I've worked in Vegas so often. Right, right. I've gotten. It's just weird, you know. Like if people talk about addiction or like you know, people always want to drink or something. 
it's just weird. It's just not. It's gambling to me. It's just like I don't. It's like in my DNA that there's fear there somewhere. I might. I might. I'm quite curious about blackjack, and I might occasionally go and throw. You know, look, you know, throw something on a roulette table just for a laugh. Like I'm talking about, like once every ten years. Right. But I got no. I just don't have any. The only time I ever bet is when I go to football matches in the UK. Right. And if I'm lucky enough to be invited to someone's box, they bring. When you're having dinner, they bring round a sheet and you actually bet on the result. So I, I actually do that because it's football, and I'm right. mad. I'm mad about football. Um, but there's no. I just don't know. It's just. I think watching my dad, obviously, when from when I was very young and seeing what it did to him. Um, it's it obviously just closed off that door. So, and what about alcohol and drugs? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I've I've had periods of um of of drinking, not drinking. So I think I think, but everything in you know moderation, really. So, okay, so it's not that. Well, I'm not sure. It's not that you don't have a an addictive personality. It's like gambling is a thing unto itself. Push that aside. Yeah. Okay, so if you are going to school in its late seventies. From the U.S. perspective, this is pub rock, Graham Parker and the Room or whatever. Yeah. No, it's T-Rex, actually. Okay. T-Rex a little earlier, like <laughs> yeah, 1972. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when did you get into music? Very early age. Like I was, my dad did get a lot of albums and singles. And um, so I just, he always, there was always records around the house and I just became. So he did get a lot. Yeah. He was into music. So he bought a lot of albums and he had quite an eclectic taste. He, there would be the Beatles and the Stones, but there would be, um, then there'd be the crooners like Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, but then there'd be Santana and like more exotic right. kind of music. And like a lot of, he'd buy like a lot of like African drumming albums and stuff like that. So he was always had these mad gatefold sleeves. Um, so I and I've still got some of them actually. So I, 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 there was music always around. I was always banging things as a kid, apparently. And then, um, you know, I had my piano lessons and stuff like that. But drum, drum, you, drums is what I settled on. Okay, so how long did you play the piano? Well, on and off for a few years, like. But but it never really stuck with okay, me, which, I, which then, I gratefully regret. Right. Greatly regret. The so drums, the drums drum never, lessons. How long did you take drum lessons or play drums? Um, probably from. 11 or 12 till till DJing really kicked in which was about 14 15 so I had a drum kit a Ludwig drum kit that he got me and I right. used to sit in our front room with the headphones on trying to play trying to follow along with Keith Moon and John Bonham okay did you ever <laughs> and the play first it? thing I could ever play when we formed the school band and we used to do Smoke in the Water by Deep Purple <laughs> and we could do Hold Your Head Up by Argent of course um, I could play I could play almost every instrument on that song and um so yeah, it was it was fun times, and we used to um, we did some school concerts, and we did a like village hall concert, and but one day I saw a DJ at a school disco for the first time with two belt drive turntables. Oh, and a little amp. bit slower. You're yeah, how so old at the time? This is like fourteen. Okay, so 15, that's nineteen seventy four. Five. Five. Okay. Yeah. That was not happening in the U.S. in the early seventies. We had a DJ but scene. It, well, this was not cool. This was like wedding. Like, okay, but one question. Right, so okay. he had two turntables just so he didn't have to worry about a break, or was he mixing the two together? No, 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 no mixing. It was okay, like just just two turntables and and a, like what looked like a house amp, you know, an amplifier taken from his house, right? And um, yeah, it was a microphone. He was, he was like, right. now, now, this is number two in the charts. It's like you know, Slade. and this was like at a school Mary, dance. Yes, yes, school dance. And but was your school boys only or girls too? 
it was boys only at that stage. And just when I left, in, in the sixth form, they started to introduce girls finally. So um, this would have been just in the in the middle school, the, what we called the O-level years, the GCSE years. So um, I, I can't remember exactly. Oh, okay, so you see but, the but, guy with the two belt-driven turntables. Yeah. And then I just thought, well, my dad's got loads of records. This makes a much better noise than I'm making with my band. I seem much more in control with that. So firstly, it was me and a friend of mine, my school friend. So we did a bit of a double act of like... Whoa, 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 whoa. You decide you're going to do it. You're, there's no rehearsal because you think you know everything. Kind of, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So then when do you say, I'm going to go out and get gigs? Well, then I took over the school disco. So I, I, th I can't remember. We had one at the end of every term. So so um, what did you said? Instead of hiring somebody, you know, volunteer yourself? Yeah, because I think there was a student's union school, something like Are that. Are you so. that type of person, entrepreneurial, like looking I for holes? I, I would never have used that word at the time, but I clearly was more than I give myself credit for. So, And back then... Being a DJ meant having the gear. Right. So, like, the only, you could be a DJ if you had the gear. So it was all about getting the gear. So with a bit of money that my dad gave me and, like, scrapping together stuff, I, I managed to get, you know, you get the two speakers, you get an amplifier, you get the turntables, and it, and it went from there. And my, the for, my formative years as a DJ was all about being a mobile DJ, cause, which meant you had the gear. And then right. I, had, I had the transit van quite early. How old were you when um, you got the transfer? Oh, really? In the UK, but yeah, you said 60, it was 70. a duo at, what, at yeah, first? Yeah, it was a guy called Nigel Burns, and I lost track with him, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But he, at the beginning, we there was two of us, and I, I can't remember quite why, but it's probably to do with the fact that he probably put some money in and got one of the speakers, and I got the other one. And we had, well, the, we had the boxes, like, with the flashing three lights in. It was total, you know, classic kind of cliche stuff. Um, and it was, play, you know, school discos where we'd play – t-rex but then i'd learn I'd, I'd you know play funkadelic you know one okay. nation under a groove or or get up you know it's casey and the sunshine band disco and the sex selects james brown and i realized that these this music made the dance floor move more than me playing mark boland right um and i kind of that's where I've, my formative my, my taste starts to come together as a 15 16 year old that really soul music was my thing um and I spent a lot of time around Gravesend, even though we lived in this village a few miles outside. And there was a record shop in Gravesend called Chris's Records, and I got myself a weekend job there. And I just loved the idea of, like, you know, filing the records away in plastic covers. Like, obviously, the covers in the shop were empty, and then you'd take them to the... <laughs> and they and this this shop had quite... Well, the, unlike, the, the, unlike the U.S., the records were not shrink-wrapped. No, no, everything was like you you it was in cellar, it was in an open plastic right. cover. But the, but this because this this town I, I grew up around had a strong West Indian community, an Indian community, an Engl a, you know, white community, and they liked reggae and they liked soul and a lot of the kids were going up to London to like f early kind of underground How far soul is club. this from London? It was it was an hour on the train, okay. you know, 20, 20 miles outside of London on the Thames, South Thames coast. Um, and so I, I, I started hanging around with a load of people that liked music, like liked music that wasn't the music that was top 40. Um, and back then growing up, even then, there was a lot of specialist radios, state, you know, programs on Radio 1. Um, there was a, a very eccentric um, American guy called Roscoe, Emperor Roscoe. Of course, who used, who he was on WNEW in yeah, New York. So he, he used to play... 
you know, white boy soul records. So it was the first time I'd heard anything like the average white band or anything like that. Um, and then there was um, a guy called Tony Prince who was on Radio Luxembourg and then eventually Robbie Vincent and Greg Edwards. They were my, you know, and it was like, it was like the window to another world hearing the, this music and everything was very rare and like you had to really hunt around. Right, and, it's the opposite of today. Yeah, complete opposite. And I'd right. have to go up, you know, either send people up to London or I'd, I'd start going to London on the train and going into Soho or to Holborn and then finding these records in these record stores. And then you have to build your relationship with the person behind the counter because there'd only be five copies and if you weren't cool enough, you weren't going to get one of the five copies. So it was all this thing of searching music and then when i'd get it back home and i'd play it in kent you know around these shows that i started doing i'd cover up the labels so that other people couldn't steal it off me or find out what it was so it was all very um it was it was cool okay so you're in what we would call high school how many nights a week or how many nights a month are you working um well once i'd left school at 18 no before you left school because you did it school it wasn't i mean hard you know like once i I can't even remember like once or twice a month probably we did so rare rare yeah okay and then no i did well i was doing mobile no i was getting hired to do weddings and stuff like that and okay so you're you're making um, decent money yeah start making decent money Uh, quite quickly what do your parents say about you not going to university initially they were um there was a little bit of resistance and initially they were pushing me, but um, they they saw it was my passion and didn't really stand in my way. I think they kept thinking it would wear itself out and that, um, just be careful that you don't get too old and it's too late that if you want to go to university or you want to do this stuff. But my dad didn't really go to uni um, and my mum didn't go to uni, so it wasn't a uni tradition in our family. So that probably helped. Okay, um, so- and things started to happen quite quickly, but... I always, um, you know, DJs didn't, no one DJed for a living back then. That's the big point to make. So you, even, you know, mobile DJs had day jobs, you know, club DJs, the early ones that I first heard about, they had day jobs. Um, Unless you were literally the breakfast show DJ on the BBC or Radio 1 or something like that, which I didn't ever want to be i'd worked out quite early on that i didn't want to play other people's music choices if i was going to be on the radio i wanted to play what i wanted to play um so i got a day job so it's 1979 um what was your day job i joined a music magazine called blues and soul which was the 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 mix you know the dance magazine of the day although it was right well, could the- you make any money working for blues uh, yeah and yeah soul? i got a salary i got a car um, oh really it, yeah it, it had so that's you know and i and i I don't know if you remember, like in the UK, there used to be a mag. A, Paulie Yates was, right. a, was a writer for Record Mirror, and she right. was the first one that ever wrote about like pop culture stroke gossip. So I, I was obsessed by what she wrote, and I thought I want to write something. I want to write about the scene and the gossip in a cool way and the music. And so I, that was what I thought my job was going to be at Blues and Soul magazine. But the day I got there, the publisher said to me. Yeah, that's just that's just a laugh. You know, your real job, you're going to have to go and sell advertising. That's what I figured. Yeah. So if you want to do that, you can do that, but you've <laughs> got to go and sell some ads. So they gave me a car to go around London and um, sell advertising. So I would have to go um, around all the record shops, you know, back in the days. So the record right. shop ads, they used to list 100 titles 
Um, and then you'd put them in the back of the magazine with the 100 titles mail order, you know. Um, and with the reggae shops, it got a bit tricky because if you made a spelling mistake, they'd try and not pay your bill. So, you know, I had guns pulled on me and like all, all sorts of things back in the day. So, um, but it was a, it was a, it was a rites of passage. It was a massive experience. And it was, I started to meet more people in the industry because I was writing this column. So it was kind of the making of me working at Blues and Soul magazine. And you're living where at the time? I was commuting from Kent into London. So you're living um, with your parents? Um, I, no, I actually got a house really young as well. I got, I, I managed through bits of money from DJing. Houses were super cheap back then. I ma- my first house was, I got mortgage obviously, but it was like twenty grand or something. I got like three bedroom terraced house. You actually Graves bought in. it? Yeah, bought it. Yeah, and <laughs> I, my godmother was quite wealthy, and she left me a bit of money. I mean, you're talking about like. Even if you had five grand, you could get, right, you right, could get a understand. deposit on a proper house. It was opposite a cemetery, but it was actually quite cool. And um, so, how long are you at? Uh, so magazine? I, le- I left the house. So, so the magazine I was 1979 till 1983, and then the record companies were starting to kind of, you know, get more and more interested in dance music. And Roger Ames was working at what was called Phonogram, and there was a guy called Tracy Bennett working at a place called Decca and Tracy had signed Bananarama to Decca and Roger had signed, you know, tainted, you know, soft cell Dex's midnight runners. Roger was killing it. And, and they, to keep him happy, they gave him his own label. So they gave him the redundant London label, right. which was sitting on a shelf um, and said, well, why don't you reinvent London? Um, and he came together with Tracy and they formed London records. And then there was a club promotions, A&R man at, phonogram at the time called jeff young who also happened to be a dj that was a bit older than me and, and my buddy and you know i was almost his protege and he was also on the radio so i was kind of following his path and he they assumed he was going to go with them to start this new venture and he said no he wanted to stay at phonogram um and he wanted to retire he, he, eventually he packed up djing as well he just wanted to do radio not club djing and they said, well, who else are we going to call? And they said, why don't you call this guy Pete Tong? So I had a meeting with them. And it was it was amazing, those two. You know, Roger's, you know, very thoughtful and sensible. And, you know, Tracy was quite wild and flamboyant and um, the sexy guy everyone wanted to sign to kind of thing with, with great spiel and amazing ears. And I worked for the t- – I joined them and it was um, – it was – you know, a, a ride that took, I went, I went with them for 18 years until early 2000s till the label got sold. And it was, it was an incredible time, incredible period. And, um, we hit the ground running and the first day I ever went into work, um, we were number one in the chart with Candy Girl with New Edition, which Roger and Tracy had licensed off of, um, Streetwise off Arthur Baker. And I was given the tapes to the next single, like big half-inch tapes. So you're a DJ, go and edit the next single. And you, oh, really? And I, and I was like, I, and I was walking <laughs> out the door and like, I'd never cut tape with a razor before. So, but I went, I went to a studio in Marble Arch, which actually eventually became Paul Weller's studio called Solid Bond. And there was a lovely old guy in there called Carlos. And he he took me under his wing and he, he said, don't worry, we're going to work it out. I was like, well, what do you want to do? You know, it's like, well, I want to cut like eight bars out the intro. It's like, and he showed me like with the razor and I, I had cut tape at home, but nothing like on a master. Okay. You, did so, you cut the master? Did you yeah, do yeah, the you master? Can, well, I, I guess it was a copy of what they'd sent us from America but <laughs> right. back, back then. Um, so you cut, I started editing literally my first day at work. It was quite funny. So um, it was a, a real rites of passage, but, and then, 
you know, I, I start, they started sending me to America um, very regularly. And it was the days when you, you know, walk down the street and bump into someone and license a record off them. A bit like, I remember in Ertigan, Emma Ertigan's book, he, he says right. that about the Rolling Stones. Like, you know, it was, a, it was a fantastic time. I walked down the street and I bumped into Mick Jagger and I signed him. And it was a bit like that with dance music back then. And I, I signed um, Run DMC, licensed them from profile from Corey Robbins for the for the world outside of America. And that got me straight in with um, with Russell and Lior um, and 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 Rick Rubin and um I met those three very early on and um and that and we and we did and that was the Raising Hell album you know so that was hugely successful and off the back of that I managed to sign Salt and Pepper from Eddie O'Loughlin at Next Plateau Records in between signing like the odd early like Paradise Garage house record or the early house records that were coming through from Chicago and I was I was on a roll as an A&R man I mean we just, we signed Push It and that was like a massive massive hit um and eventually salt and pepper we stuck with them um and we en ended up becoming the label in america eventually as well during the kind of um the on vogue what a man right. times so it was it was it was great fun and then i they gave me my own label so dance music was like blowing up so in 1986 87 just as house music was starting i we started ff i started ffrr which was actually a little symbol on the top of the old London logo that just stood for full frequency range recording. So it was like a like mono stereo Dolby. It was an old symbol from the Decca days um, about the quality of a recording. I thought it would be quite nice because we were obsessed by Def Jam. So like black, silver, wanted something like Def Jam. So FFRR looked quite good. Okay. So you're working at London Records. You were successful. Sounds like you're making a good paycheck. Yeah, yeah, I was doing all right. Then. Okay, and and then I was still all the way DJing and doing. Radio okay, that's at the my same question. Time. How much were you DJing? Well, then, like every week, it was um, you know, the club scene. Okay, let's 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 start off. there. Okay, there's a. I long, don't know how I did it. It's a long <laughs> tradition of uh, the Brits going to Ibiza, but when did it turn into a whole dance, stay up all night environment? Ibiza. Yeah. Well, it was that from the very beginning. We just weren't welcome as Brits in the late 80s. So, um, you know, we the, the Brits used to go there as like a cheap tourist, you know, package holiday destination in the early 80s. And it wasn't until the late 80s, like specifically 1987, where we kind of discovered Alfredo and Amnesia and Pasha and, and started seeing these parties that went through the night and then carried on going when the sun came up. And that was totally unique because we had the licensing laws of the UK. Um, and that's when everything started to really, really change. But, I mean, so Ibiza, um, from 1991, I've been there every year, every ever since. Okay. But, but the yeah, the the 90s, it, you know, it started to really kind of shape itself. It really, really blew up in, in probably the 2000s is when. Okay, when, yeah. but the clubs there. Were they existing, or did the Spaniards have a vision? They had a vision, for sure. It, it just by accident or design or this vision, <laughs> um, it happened to be this small island. You've been, you've been there, yes, right? Yes, so, a couple yeah, of times, right. And it, you know, there happened to be- Been there four, with you. Yeah, four, <laughs> four or five clubs, all very close to each other, that happened to that then went on to become some of the most famous clubs in the world. And I think it was the 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 mix of the audience and and the liberalism of the the licensing laws that enabled that to happen. So obviously it's changed a lot over the years because that 
that idea of going through to the morning and carrying on, that's kind of stopped. You know, the idea of the big super clubs like Amnesia um, and Pasha in particular um, going on until they wanted to, like 10 in the morning, that, that's that gone. You know, they, they, so in the last 10 years, it's been much stricter about you must finish at six or you must finish at seven or you must finish at eight or whatever. And then often the after, and then there's no carry on, like officially the after party scene often starts after lunch <laughs> and it's actually a bit more organized and you know so but the the idea of going through the night I, I get a long answer to your question but actually it's it's probably been more curtailed it was like that where, where it was like 24 hours you know and then, and now it isn't it's okay more, to but what, you can but you can find somewhere to dance pretty much 24 hours a day right. just but not what, in the same place right to what degree do you believe it was fueled by drugs um well, clearly, clearly it had a massive influence on it. Um, that's, that's the, you know. Okay. I mean, it it was a a combination of things. I mean, it's all it, it's easy from a you know tabloid non you know educate you know if you if you don't know anything about the music and you just want to write a certain type of history about it, you could you could lean on it that way. But to, to but to think that it wasn't artistic and it wasn't um, about the music, you'd be, you'd be completely missing the point, which comes right back to the beginning of our conversation, which is why Ibiza Classics works, because the music was great and maybe it didn't necessarily get the um, the props it deserved back in the day because that's what a lot of people thought, you know. Okay, the, so the very reason we started the IMS was because people thought all that happens in Ibiza is a, it was a party. You know? Okay, so how important is Manchester, the Hacienda and the Axe there? Um, hugely important. Um, you know, it's, that's a whole nother thing. I, I was, I was an observer and occasional visitor. At the, I, I wasn't part of that cause I was, right. I, I was a London guy. Um, but you know, phen phenomenally important. And you've got to remember back in the late eighties when that started, you know, the country was much more disconnected. You know, just the idea of like, you know, having these things and um, the way phone, we all travel right, right. now, you know, being in London and like making a trip to Manchester, it was, it was a massive thing. You know, it's like it's, this did not happen on a regular basis, you know, and it was before DJs even traveled up and down the country. So I was a big DJ in, in the Southeast and I was virtually unknown in the rest of the country. What, what was a night worth to you financially? Well, back then? Yeah. Probably... Um, well, in the eighties, I don't know. There was it definitely starts with hundreds, and then it becomes thousands. Okay, <laughs> so uh, in any event, but you're aware of the scene in Manchester. Oh, totally. I mean, and I was obviously by then I was in the record company, and right. Mike Pickering, quite and Graham Park, quite rapidly became rival A and R men as well. I mean, Pickering went close in with with Deconstruction, and Deconstruction became the label of the North, even though it was run by one guy from Liverpool. It was actually always seen as it was, you know, and then obviously factory was, was there okay. As well, but so. most of those factory acts, I mean, joy division had purchase here and is maintained as bigger than it's ever been, but the happy Mondays, a lot of those acts never made it here. How big were they in the UK? Absolutely massive. Um, and more than massive, they were hugely, um, you know, they carried an awful lot of gravitas, um, particularly new order, obviously coming from, coming out of joy division, Less so, something like orchestral maneuvers in the dark or something like that. But fa Factory was an, an amazing thing, you know. And I was, I got deeply involved with them towards the end because London, 
don't want kind of started to bail them out. You know, right. we, we started by licensing the Happy Mondays and having their records around the rest of the world. And then as the financial troubles got worse, um, we got we got further and further into factory to the point where we bought it. Yeah. So, and then I used to work a lot with Tony in the city, and um, Tony Wilson, Tony Wilson, and um, then from an A and R perspective, I, I actually ended up looking after. Um, New Order and became their A&R man when they came over to London okay. and so worked very closely with you know with Bernard and, and with, with Rob Gretton Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80 Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Okay, so you're a DJ. At what point do you stop playing individual records and start mixing the records together? <laughs> um, late, late, let's just think this, but it's through eight, probably early 80s. And what was so basically what happened is, is um, you know, when the soul scene was blowing up, the underground soul scene and it was a northern soul scene in 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 the north um one of the guys in our gang you know the, the 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 biggest one of the biggest djs of that time was a guy called froggy and he was my mentor when it came to dj equipment so he was always the geek with the dj equipment he had this orange sound system which was incredible and i bought decks off him when he was um 
uh, re-upping to the to the newest model. So I got all his old equipment and became like an understudy to Froggy almost. But he started going to New York before, and you know, one of the first guys to ever go to New York and see Larry Levan. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a very famous writer, a beautiful guy called James Hamilton as well, that was like that used to review all the music for Record Mirror, and he was the first one to actually issue BPMs. So he every right. review came with a BPM. Beats um, per minute. Beats per minute. And then, and Froggy went over and like saw the early, um, you know, saw David Mancuso and saw um, Larry Levan in action. And so when he came back from New York, like it was like he had two copies of everything. It's like, what the, f-, you know, what the <laughs> fuck are you doing? It's like, oh, I can make, I can extend this. And he literally came back. He literally, it was like, you know, Moses coming down from the mountain. It's like, I've been to New York. <laughs> like, I've seen Larry Levan and I've bought two copies of this from the vinyl factory or whatever. And now I can play this record and make it like twice as long. It was like, oh my God. And it, and that's because you work out what tempo it is and you match the tempos. It was, you know, it was just, it was before, you know, it's just, just as very speed turntables were coming in. That in fact, you could even do that. So he opened our, he was definitely the gateway to open everybody's eyes to mixing. And we were, we were edging towards smooth segues. I mean, the, 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 the other biggest DJ of the day was a guy called Chris Hill, who actually used to run Ensign Records with Nigel Grange, right. Lucian Grange's brother. And they who signed passed a, away. Passed about away two years with, ago. Yeah, and, and, um, and they signed a Boomtown Rats and Sinead O'Connor. And, and so Chris had a day job, but he was the biggest DJ at the time. And he used to sing over the records and talk th- across the segues. So it like, blurred everything together. Um, and Froggy kind of brought in this more like modern way of doing it. Obviously, we were aware as well of like Africa Bambata and the hip hop guys and what they were doing of, in terms of turntablism. So it kind of that's when it all changed. And then suddenly, I don't know. There must have been one day where it just wasn't cool not to mix. You know, <laughs> you just had you just you just ha- it assumed you had to mix. And by the time house music kicked in, um, you know, like. Uh, you just you just had to be doing that. It was just the thing to do. Okay, did you practice or did you practice yeah, while you were on the job? No, no, definitely pra- practiced. I had the whole setup at home, and it um, and then and then there became people that were the best at mixing, you know. But there was melodic mixing, mixing in key, mixing beautiful transitions, you know, taking people on journeys. And I was um, you know, so so it it just raised the game. There was a guy called Sasha, you know, still around today, a good friend of mine. That really it was another one that really raised that. That was another real, you know, raising the bar moment. Like when he came on, because he he could just do it in his sleep, and he just everything always seemed to be in key, and it just you know, not just about mixing out of the drum break of one into the drum break of the other, but actually thinking about well, now this bass line's going here. I'm going to get this bass line to go there, and that was yeah. So it just the the, the whole skill set around it, and the 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 learning curve just increased hugely in the late 80s. Okay, so London Record is sold at around the turn of the century. Where does that leave you? Um, weirdly, at 40-plus years old and sitting around going, um, oh, my God, you know, for the first time in my life, even though I've done it my whole life, I am I am a full-time DJ. So, um, and I went So off. there was no thought of getting another record company job? I was kind of over it by then. It got... It, it, if you remember the Napster, you know, 2000, 2001, I mean, the dance music bubble had burst, you know, right. we, we, all the way through the nineties, like the, the, the ecosystem, the economic value of dance music every year just kept going up like a stock price out of control. So everything, you know, the, and the infrastructure about dance music got fatter and fatter and fatter. 
And inevitably, after 10 years of like fattening this giant cow bull, um, you st people start to take their eyes off the ball. Things definitely aren't as good as they used to be, but everyone's making loads of money. And, sl and I wouldn't say that it didn't pop around the millennium, but it got punctured right. somewhere along the way. And as we came into the new decade, after a couple of years, like the tires are deflating, um, you know, magazines are closing, uh, major record companies are starting to either, you know, make people redundant or tighten up budgets, you know, doing, doing, doing all sorts of stuff to dance labels. And by then, at my career at London, I was kind of head of A&R of the whole thing. So I'd, I'd kind of outgrown the dance bit and I'd replaced myself with people, you know, many great people worked with me and John Niven wrote the book about us with, you know, kill your friends. But, um, you know, people like Nick Raphael, who's very senior now at Capital, signed Sam Smith, you know, Christian Tattersfield, you, you're well aware of, um, used to work for us at London records. Um, even Patrick Moxie worked at London records. You know, there was like, there was loads of people, um, that, that have gone on to, to, you know, Paul McDonald, funnily enough, who's manager of, um, you know James Bay and George George Ezra. Um, he he was at London Records. You know there was an ama amazing. Okay, gang. so when it sold, are so, you so, all, yeah. so basically it? But I'd become head of A and R, and it was like the game. I remember that signing some kind of pop things because everyone right. You start signing. You you end up signing things because you think they're going to be hugely successful economically, and you kind of but you don't really love them. But like I remember there was one. I can't even remember the name of it. Um, oh God. I remember being involved in signing this pop act and it was Ollie Smallman and Dennis Inglesby were the managers and I and um and and every you know, it was one of those ones where like Roger was sure, everyone was sure, like the doorman of the building was sure, everyone at Radio One was sure, like we'd I'd made it about as sure as you could possibly make it, and it was hugely expensive. And um and we spent about a year doing this deal and six months making the record, and then it was like and then we took it to Radio 1 one day and it was Alex Jones Donnelly was the head of programming at that time. He was like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, literally within about a month, they were dropped. You know, we wrote off like half a million quid and, um, you know, people would get, you know, it's just like, no, nah, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it was um, so, and then, so I started, to, my, my full-time role started to be a bit of a consultant and I remember... When it got sold, I don't know if you remember, Roger got went into right. the kind of heavens, like working with Dick Parsons at Warner's. You know, John Reed took over on a day-to-day -day basis. We moved to Kensington. You know, me and Tracy were like, everything from our kind of indie beginnings had changed so much. We, we kind of lost a bit of interest, and I got more and more distracted by DJing. And my DJing in the early 2000s, as, as what happened to a lot of DJs then, is as the economic value from recorded music collapsed, all the value went into live. Suddenly, though, with the internet, we were getting calls from Peru and Chile and Australia for the first time. And, you know, we could start traveling and migrating like birds to where the money was. So 2000 to probably 2005, um, I just did an awful lot of touring. Um, so, and at what point do you stop working as a record executive? Well, 2001, 2002 okay. starts to kind of filter out. There was a little flirtation with Universal, um, where I, I was going to, I, I kind of did a deal to do some compilations and I was going to consult with a dance label and some ex-staff from London Records were working there. And funny enough, six months negotiating that and um, the guy that did the deal 
I did. I signed a deal on a Friday, and then on the Monday he, he, got, pulled he, he got pulled out. So, <laughs> and it was, it was, it was Matt Jagger, and and that Jason Eiley came in to take over, and it, we got on fine. He said, "But it's just not my vision, you know. It's like I got I got enough things to fix here. That's not going to work." And um, so I went back out and did other things. I was doing radio, and I had a radio production company and stuff, different bits and pieces, and then. Um, Around that same time, I changed managers, and then WME for the f- and I knew Geiger because Geiger was our, our agent for New Order. Mark Geiger head Mark of music Geiger. at WME. Yeah, yeah. And so WME opened in London, and if you remember, it was Ed Bicknell, strangely, right? He was dire Straits His manager, manager. Dire Straits, right? Um, David Levy, Solomon Parker, and they were the three that opened, and it was a that was their first office. And my manager was Gary Blackburn, who's the manager of Fatboy Slim, who's David Levy's long-term client. And Gary said, you should be with David. He's the best guy. And David was the first ever DJ agent anyway, literally in the world. He was the first, you know, dedicated agent for a DJ, and that was Paul Oakenfold. So I knew about him. Um, So I moved to WME, and at the same time, Geiger was like, you know, well, he knew I was an out-of-work record company guy, and he always saw me as that. He said, why don't you come and do A&R for an agency? So it was quite visionary thinking. And I said, what do you mean? How's that going to work? He said, well, just tell us what we should sign. You know, help us introduce us to, you know, know, I I love dance music, I love electronic music. He always did. He was obsessed by Moby, um, obsessed by Factory. And he he said, why don't you come and do it here? So that's how that relationship started, and I'm still with him, you know. Okay, so now when you're on your own, how many nights a week or how many nights a month are you working? With, back then, yeah. Or, I mean, because uh, I don't know, like the average gigs is. I think my averages have gone. I think the peak was like hundred gigs a year. I was never like Deb Mouse or you know. So you're never one because you I was never. I was never two hundred gigs a year. I mean, funny enough, I've always had. You know, you know, I've gone through that divorce. I've gone, you know, that I, I'm definitely DJing didn't help. Um, and that that early period of the 2000s where it all fell apart. So me traveling, you know, more away from home, insecurities probably, I mean, all sorts of stuff. And then, um, but I've always cherished this other, I've never, I think the reason I'm still DJing to this day is simply because I never could do burnout because I always had, you know, I, I, I see it as an artistic thing. And I definitely do do it for the money as well, but um, I've always managed to, never have to do it as much as everyone else has had to do it. Right, because you've had other uh, income streams. But yeah. assuming you did want to do it, there's enough work out there for you to work 200 nights a year? Not now, I, w- I wouldn't think. Not unless I want to do some really rubbishy things that um, that I wouldn't enjoy. So I try and – I try and. I mean, it's, there's always this thing of – and it's, it's the same for if you're a, you know, a musician in any genre of music – doing it as long as I've done it you have to there's a certain amount of reinvention you have to go through but I think I've been lucky that my curiosity for the new and the next and the fidgetness of always thinking looking around the corner um has kept me current like that it's just it's just the way I am you know okay so So, have you been one of those DJs you know I travel with a a USB stick I get on the private jet I'm going somewhere else (laughs) has that been your have you lived that lifestyle a little bit Nothing. I, I was a bit like um, my my era of true superstardom came at a time where the money was still pretty crazy, but the 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 travel wasn't. It, it I was just before that. Like so, right. I'm talking about like mid two, 
mid nineties to mid two thousands was probably the purple patch for me when I was like number one on polls and all sorts right. of things. And the, and the money, don't get me wrong, the money was still good, but we weren't doing what they. It's a bit like football, you know. You could right. be, if if you're George Best, you know, you, it's amazing, right? Until like twenty years later, there's David Beckham, and you realise that you're earning like a tenth or, or you know right. a, a hundredth of what they're earning, and it's been a bit like that for me. So, I, I still, you know, you still do well out of it. And yes, I've, I've used I use private jets when I have to, but for me, you know, there was there was some times in Ibiza during the residency period when I before I moved to America, um, there was one year, two years actually, where I. I was given a private jet every week for 18 weeks for two years, like to do the whole season. Right. So they would, I would I'd, I'd be on radio one until like nine o'clock at night on a Friday. And then I would would we'd, we'd drive um, to the, the airport and get a plane, do the gig and then yeah, come back the next day. So um, that was how, when did you get, and how did you get the BBC gig? The BBC gig was, um, so we're going back to, we wind back to the eighties again. So I, uh, again, I didn't use that word entrepreneurial at the time, but I, I guess looking back, I was because it was like, well, how am I going to get involved in this music? I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be a breakfast show DJ playing pop records, but I love this music. So I just want to share this music with as many people as possible. And the, the people that influenced me the most in terms of shaping who I was as a DJ were these guys I was hearing on the radio playing specialist music. So it was a natural thing for me to like, well, I, I want to do that. I used to sit at home listening to the radio, writing down what people said, writing down the names of all the records, and I just got obsessed with it. So I got, when I was at the magazine, I was already, I was dabbling with like local radio, pirate radio, um, anything I could do to get on. Um, and a, a weird twist of luck, fate, whatever, is this guy Froggy I told you about had the right. equipment. He used to do. He used to provide the equipment for Radio One roadshows. So when Radio One did a outside broadcast, he'd be the guy that would do the equipment. He then got to know some of the producers there and some of the DJs there. And there was this DJ called Peter Powell, who was the um, drive time DJ, and he was very progressive with his music policy. Very curious about. You know, he was the one that broke Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran and Malcolm McLaren and all these things. And um. He he wanted to have a a proper street DJ come onto his show on a weekly basis and give them some tips. That was a feature he was doing, and it turned out that um, Froggy was was very technical and he was very good with 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 mixing records together. So sort of technical, but the content like sometimes he didn't have the time to find the records. So who did he call me? <laughs> so I was this at the magazine getting all this music and going around all the shops. So I used to feed folk froggy music, but lo and behold, what quickly happened is that, um, they start inviting me as well to go up to radio one. So there I am at like 19, 18 and I'm going on to primetime BBC radio one, giving them tips of my records and I thought, this is like, you know, I literally, I've literally gone from zero to 100. <laughs> exactly. And I literally, after a couple of years of that, it was like, well, give me a job, give me my own show. It's like, no, tap me on the head. So you've got to go away and get some more experience, son. You know, you, you can't just jump to the, you know, the Manchester United, Real Madrid, you know, LA, you know, the 49ers or whatever, the biggest football club is, soccer. Um, and so I, w I went back out, and I but I used that calling card of having been on Radio 1 it's kind of as leverage to get onto commercial radio in Kent. And then I was on Radio London, which was a BBC station. And I got onto Capital with Richard Park, 
1987, just as house music and the rave scene exploded. So I was the Saturday night dance guy on the biggest radio station in London. And I was there for four years. Um, and then I was like the number one draft choice in 1991 when that guy, Jeff Young, I told you about, retired. And I then got moved to Radio 1. So I joined Radio 1 in 91 and been there ever since. Now, in America, nothing lasts that long. No, I know. Is that, the nature, <laughs> is that you or is that uh, BBC? I think it's a bit of both. I think um, there's nothing like the BBC globally, unfortunately. Um, you know, just public service radio that wants to be popular is an unusual thing. You know, you've got these triple J's in Australia and things like that. Right. And, but, and you've got N NPR here, but nothing, nothing like what the Radio 1 have done, you know, the, from, and they get battered, you know, they get battered on a annual monthly basis by the conservative press that they shouldn't be there on all, across all disciplines of the BBC from, you know, news, sport, drama, everything. But radio, um, thank God it's been there and it's been, you know, it's still, it, it, it's brilliant, but it still saddens me a little bit. I mean, in terms of moving the needle in, in, um, especially for dance music, electronic music, it still does it better than anything in the world, which is great, but actually also kind of a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Before still, we go know, there, but you also have a show on iHeart, right? Well, I did, actually. That um, ended? That ended. And it, it was, um, you know, it was enjoyable. I, I got introduced to, um, the I met all the senior people in, in um, Bob Pittman, right? Right. And, and in Ibiza, actually, through Pino Sagliocco. <laughs> you remember <laughs> the, the, the very famous Spanish right. Live Nation promoter? And they, and they would, you know, I think Bob's son was enjoying a beef and everything like that. It was anyway, like Pete Song's your guy, like Pete Song should do a dance show. And, it, and I did it for a while, but it was a bit, it was, you know, I had good people around me, but it was a little bit soulless. I, I just found it, I don't know, no disrespect to iHeart, but it's, that, it's just that thing of like, it's a commercial radio station, a commercial model, and it, the commercial model for music it's always been a struggle in this country to do specialist dance radio. Right. And okay. I, I, I want to point out, the read the, and the simple thing being, you know, I, I used to go to New York City, as I said, I used to sit in hotel rooms and I would listen to Frankie Crocker, WBLS, Timmy Regisford, massive respect, um, Merlin Bob, you know, these guys trained me, taught me so much when I was a kid about dance radio and mixed radio. And I wouldn't be here without them. And they were they were on American stations, but um, sad, sadly, most outside of obviously you know the metropolis of New York City being so big, no no other you know mixed show radios on American radio tend to happen after midnight or super late. Right. You know the whole power of Radio One was like Pete Tong was on at six p.m. on a Friday night. You know, and they and they, and he stayed there for you know. I'm I'm still on a Friday night. I'm a, on a bit later now. I start at nine. And, and, and how many and, hours, John? Two hours for my show and two hours hosting the Essential Mix okay. later in the night. And it's all gone to like Listen Again and BBC Sounds and Pog. You know, it's like it's a different model now. But to be on basically at six o'clock at night for twenty years at least, um, that's what made it so powerful. That's why it moved. You're the living in LA. All that's pre-recorded. Now, now I it's I do it at home. Yeah, it's, it's smoke and mirrors and technology. Thank God. And when I'm in London, I do it live. So I'd still go back quite regular. Okay, best gig you've ever had? <sighs> Probably Love Parade um, was one of them. Doing it in Berlin when it still happened. You know, being I was one of the first ever Brits to be invited to play at the monument. Um, and there was a million people on the streets. So that would Love Parade is where they had the accident. All the people died, right? 
Um, in Germany, where they were ultimately yeah, going yeah. through the tunnel. Yeah, whatever. yeah. I don't know if it was still the Love Parade then. But, but maybe yeah, I had yeah, that yeah, wrong. Yeah, but okay. But it, yeah, so but the Love, Love Parade, Parade was an open street. Party, and what year yeah. was that? Um, that must have been early 90s. Um, so and what made it so great? Well, being well, playing to so many people and it being a kind of historic thing. And we did, we, we, we recorded it for Radio One as well. Um, so it's just, I just, Obviously, it's one of those things that will never happen again. And um, we tried to re replicate it in the UK. We did a UK love parade, and there was one at Le in Leeds in a place called Round Hay Park. And that we got 250,000 people. And it was me and Sasha and Darren Emerson from Underworld on stage at the end. That was, that was truly special but unfortunately a lot of people's gardens got trampled and like people were pissed, yeah you can do it once and yeah, then and then, and then we got again. we got moved to newcastle the next year and it was a very toned, toned down version and it never quite worked um space abitha you know all, all those abitha clubs having got to play them all of them at some point will always be special south america's really good you know Where Argen in argentina america? in particular in my wife's brazilian but argentina is probably the most the, the true natural home to kind of electronic music you know there's some i've played some pretty special shows in chile and, and brazil but argentina is something about that the kind of mentality down there and then america you know the u.s has been pretty amazing as well i mean miami might as well be another country right um because that's it's that's you know so mixed down there especially during conference time you know in the miami right. music week that's that you've got some great memories there and space in Miami is probably the, the closest. It was the first club to ever be remotely like Ibiza. Of, and and, it, and for, to this day, funny enough, it's more like Ibiza than Ibiza is now because space <laughs> Miami does go pretty much 24 hours. So, Okay, most exotic place you've ever played? Um, Boracay, maybe, in the Philippines. Um, you got to look it up, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> I don't even know what that is. That's like a very long plane ride followed by two small planes and a boat. So you get to like Desert Island and I did this party in the days when cigarette companies were still allowed in some corner of the world to sponsor parties. And it was me and Armand Van Helden and Todd Terry, funny enough. And it was on a beach, sand in your shoes, you know, and it was, that was pretty exotic. So what's the biggest payday you've had for a DJ gig? Um, New Year's Eve, 1999. Um, Probably yeah. seven figures. No, no, no. <laughs> no, think back then. It was it was six figures, but it was which was still pretty big. But um, yeah. Okay. No, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Does the music excite you as much today as it did back in your formative years in heyday? <sighs> Hard to see. yes, yes, and no. Um, I, I worry sometimes, you know, I was talking to the guys at Splice about this this morning, about how, you know, the ultimate, you know, the electronic music probably more than any other form of music has been so democratized. You know, every, you know, the barriers to entry right. have been completely removed. So everyone can make music. It's amazing. Everyone can publish their music on SoundCloud. And obviously we talked about all the streaming services. Um, and the, Keys have been handed over of the asylum, as they used to say. But the, the the downside of it is it almost seems harder. And, you know, to get to the AAA list at the very top, that that worries me a little bit. You know, it's it's very easy to make a very good record now. You know, it's it's mu it's almost impossible to make a genius record, you know. 
that do it. in da- dance music with the sample packs and like if you know you can make you can make th- something sound pretty convincing pretty well, forgetting the people who get in at the bottom the yeah, you know yeah. the uh semi pros yeah. uh if you are at the top tier are there fewer genius records than before i think so yeah i think so i mean no, no disrespect to some you know i, I did th- yeah we haven't had you know that that era of the prodigy and underworld and right. you know orbital and um you know we daft punk even now is a long time ago um so i think the yeah, that you know, I'm I'm kind of waiting. You know, we're all you know the fishing nets are out. <laughs> well, we're More all waiting ever, in know. all stripes of music. I would use yeah. a similar description in uh, in what I would label popular music, yeah. the Spotify top fifty. Yeah, uh, especially certainly a narrow genre. So, who do you believe are the most artistically successful DJs working today? It's <sighs> a big question, Bob. Um, Well, the, 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 there's a, there was a fork in the road somewhere during the EDM era where the, the, what, the, the ranking system from success was, was two different paths. So you've got the music makers, you know, the pop producer writers. So, and whether you like their music or not, you right. have to give them credit. You know, you know, from David, who's a good friend of mine. David Ghetto. Yeah. Even you know marshmallow as well to to, right. to a certain extent did come from our world and gone and gone into the stratosphere of another world and I think you know I wasn't particularly a marshmallow fan at the start of what his music but I'm I'm a big fan of what he's achieved in terms of the impact and influence and consistency that he's been able to have at the very kind of top tier of the pop table so I think that's worth the props um, on the underground electronic side. There's there's some amazing you know the, the 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 highest paid I should say and that's because they sell the most tickets um, are people like Solomon and Black Coffee and Tale of Us and um, Marco Carolla um, and the and the rise of the the girls you know it's it's amazing to see you know Peggy Goo, Charlotte DeWitter, Emily Lenz, Nina Kravitz um, we've probably seen the biggest game change in in the underground world in the last five years, you know, truly the, 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 the key, you know, the, the, the baton's being moved on to a new generation and a new, and a new, and a new look, you know, and the fact that female DJs and, and female electronic musicians are having such a massive impact is, is great. You know, it's, now, do you equate those people who are getting the big paychecks? Are those also the people pushing the envelope artistically? Yeah, I think so. I mean, with the underground, you don't get there by, you get there because you earn the right to be there. It's like, so it's like being in the trenches, you know, it's like being a stage actor. Um, it, you, you have to go and tr- press the flesh, tread the boards, do the work and you get to the top of the tree because people think you're really, really good. And you, and you continue to innovate with your sets. They've all got their own labels. They're all championing another generation of musicians. They've all got their own sound. Um, so I think that's a very healthy ecosystem, except for the actual person doing it. I mean, it, it's hard it's it's front line you know in the trenches work and it, and the underground is not um it's not a, it's not turning up and playing an hour at edc it's often playing you know for 10 hours um seven hours six hours you know big long sets and after parties and you know the legends around those guys is almost due down to their endurance you know i was in tulum 
um, a couple of days ago because that's become yeah, early January's become a time when all of the the underground guys flock there and there's all these big parties. Um, and as I was leaving, Solomon played his party the, the night before we left. And then when I got back here, I heard the, the guy in my hotel said, oh, Solomon's doing his after party today. And when I got back and then I f- you know, two days later, someone said it just finished. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, you know, so it's like, it's, it's, it's heavy, you know, and it's... um. But I guess it's about as rock and roll, you know. Well, the yeah, great thing it's, is, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of the punk end of like, if you want to use that analogy, it's like the punk end of of our world. Um, and you know, I, I hope rather than just hedonism, good stuff comes out of it. You know, so okay. How about this? Hasn't been something we've been reading about recently. The concept that people are just standing on stage pushing buttons. Yeah, I mean, some some of them are, and they push a lot of buttons in the right order, and it's great. <laughs> So I think, um, you know, that analogy was all about you know, pre-organized sets. Right. But, you know, I was being, you know, having, obviously being behind the scenes, I can clearly see, you know, it, it's, this was about music makers playing their own music and getting booked at bigger and bigger and bigger events and having more and more responsibility to kind of blow everybody's mind. And in the case of the Swedish House Mafia, who definitely wrote the book on it first. Right. Um it started to get into choreographed shows. You know, you're spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a visual experience. They 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 took it to another level. You know, they bought that kind of U2 level of production into the electronic world. And I all, always say hats off to them because they, they were the first. I mean, Tiesto was going around, you know, Paul Oakenfold was doing it first, you know, to a certain extent. Tiesto took it to a whole other level, Armin Van Buren, all these guys. But... You know, and their shows got bigger and bigger and bigger, and they, and they were still at the, essentially DJing, and there still was um, a sense of Tiesto didn't know what he was going to play in what order. He, you know, he, he he had a box, you know, and he had a selection, and he had his favourites, and he he was a smart DJ, so he knew how to make the crowd go crazy and stuff like that. But it there, but there still was an element of free will in what he could do. He could make a last minute decision and change something, and then the Swedish house mafia era where they start doing Milton Keynes bowl, which was unheard of in the UK for a bunch of DJs playing to, you know, 80,000 people or whatever. Um, you know, then you've got to have a U2 type Rolling Stones stage and you've got to put films on and they've got to tie in with the, um, with the music you're playing and the, the, the lights and the explosions have got to go off at the right time. So you get into that thing of that. You can't change the order. You know, you can change the order maybe before the show starts, you know, a couple of days to tell the visuals guy, but you can't just change the order. And that's where that comes from, you know. And I think Dead Mouse, to a certain extent, you know, fueled that as well because he clearly was never really playing records. But, you know, the guy was playing back his own music and reinterpreting it in different okay. ways. So. Okay, when you play, do you plan in advance? How do you do it? Do you spin records? What do you I've do? come through the full cycle of like vinyl into CDs into um, playing off a laptop with all of the software when it all started, like Ableton and Tractor and Serato and stuff like that. And, I, and I've gone full circle back to, um, yeah, I, I carry around a couple of big drives like that. And I plug them into CD players, and I I, I don't have pre-planned sets. No, I, I def, I'll do some sets that will be quite similar, you know, two or three right. days in a row, but I'll change things around. So I'm still doing it old school. It's with the orchestra that I've got into that whole. And, we, right. and you know, the orchestra, we, we, can, we can change a few things. We change songs night by night, but we have um, – that, that's more like 
it's not pressing buttons, but it's like... Well, as it has to be, yeah. you know, all the orchestral like a, like parts a, have like, to be yeah, pre-written. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've met, you know, so I'm still DJing old school in that sense, yeah. All gone, Pitong. Thumbs up <laughs> or thumbs down? What, the film? Thumbs up. <laughs> okay, yeah. but the concept, using it's like, you know, we talk about Howard Stern, and they have hit him with a hine. I know John Hine hates it. So how no, do you I, feel? I always loved it. It was... um. It was a. It was meant to be. It was. It was a fanzine in the UK called Boys Own, who were mates of mine actually, but they were very stroppy, kind of like angry men, and they started this fanzine. And the whole point of the fanzine was basically like, "Fuck you, fuck you," you know. It was to get in there and like stir shit up, and so they'd be rude about everybody. And that, and I was DJing with these guys, and they were. That's the way they were rude about me. And it was meant to be a, a way of winding me up at the start because I was. I, you know, there was a thing in the UK where if, if you were around before the year zero, which was basically when house music started, then you were a dinosaur. And the fact that I was in the Soul Boy era before and a bit of the hip hop era, they they were like, what are you doing here? It's all gone, it's all gone Pete Tong. So it was like, it was this, and then it caught on. It, it became later on like Cockney rhyming slang and in the um, Penguin Dictionary and all this stuff. And then, I, you know, it's notoriety. It was like, you know, it was it was fantastic, and then the, to end up having a movie made of that name was that just took it to another level. So now we now I have my own parties. You know, we call it. You know, we do it in Miami and we do it around the world. It's all gone Pete Tong, so it's good. Okay, so what does the future hold for you? What is the dream that's left? You've obviously achieved so much, and unexpected, like you know, with the BBC at age nineteen. What <laughs> what would you like to achieve or do in the future, whether it be music oriented or not? Well, for me, it's always come to music discovery and curation. So it's it's finding a way, I guess, of um, moving into this next decade gracefully and still being out of work. I'm blessed with that and be healthy. Um, and just, I, I guess, try and use my whole life's worth of experience in a, in a positive way um, and hopefully still try and uh, I, I'm back into like the A&R gig again I just joined 360 with Mark Gillespie who's Calvin Harris's manager um, and we've rebooted his label through Sony so I was I was I did go back into the the Warner system for a few years um, but my curiosity is back again about A&R about being much more hands-on I think funny enough recording the albums with the orchestra and being back in the studio hands-on I mean I, I had this great education I met all these amazing people. I, you know, I was at the end of the, you know, Tommy Matola, Walter Yetnikoff, you know, Barry Gordy, you know, with, I've, I've met so many people in my time, you know, I worked with Chris Morris, uh, Chris Thomas in the studio making records, you know, um, and I kind of missed it. So I think, you know, if I, if I can help um, nurture um, the next generation and champion their cause, then that, I, I would be happy. But there's no inner mounting flame, a destination, something that you would like to achieve that's, you know, stratospheric. <sighs> I still think this, it's, it's, I've end, endless conversations with people like Zane Lowe about this of, of, you know, where it's all going. I, I, I think I, I worry about, music discovery and curation you know and, and well it's completely that, broken yeah i mean there could be great stuff that doesn't yeah. rise to the top so i think i think on a very basic level on a really really basic level you know the djs i talk about especially the underground ones are still in a sense um the greatest cur curators especially in the electronic world anyway um and i i was just thinking on the way up here actually that um 
quite, I don't know, maybe maybe a few, you know, maybe a few of the DJs should, 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 should spend less time taking photos of themselves on beaches and actually tell us what music they're playing. <laughs> you know, maybe. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. I <laughs> but, guess... Um, I, I, guess, don't, I don't know. I just think the future of curation is, is still up. It's, it's still up for debate. Well, the obvious thing, people talk about playlists. I never believe I'm talking about playlists no. and streaming services. But as I say, yes, if you want to listen to the pop, hip hop, you know, pop songs, Ariana Grande, you can find that very easily. Yeah. Other genres of music. I mean, you know, if you go through the genre playlist on Spotify, which is the big kahuna, you know, you can't listen to that much music, never mind that much bad music. But I also think it's personality less. So I think. You know, as, as much as that sounds old school coming from someone like me, I just think, you know, it's, it's, it'll ultimately it'll come down to personalities. You know, Virgil Abloh does a pretty good job turning people on to fashion. Right. You know? And there's been certain people, you know, certain musicians, you know, certain hip-hop people back in the day that have turned people on to well, other I hip-hop. Believe, so I think, I think you know, the, but I believe the culture has totally changed. The culture is purely about money. Yeah. And there's really no money in curation, at least as we can see the short way down yeah, the highway. There never was that at the beginning for D. You know, no, but not, the, not for me, not for John Peel. Not yeah, for, but, you know. but John Peel, yeah, he got, as they say in Yiddish, he got the knockers, whatever. He got the great adulation. Yeah. So without the money, but in today's society where it's bottom line money, everybody is driving in another direction, even though it's the artist who's honest who ultimately has the most impact. Yeah. So it either takes someone where money is not the number one thing or just has a dream to to fix this. And I think we're, you know, across the world, certainly in America, we're moving towards that era, you know, income inequality, et cetera. And I think I mean you you spent a lot of your blogs that I read, you know, and you know, loyally <laughs> i mean all, all the start i mean all the start of apple music was based on the same frustration right from jimmy and um from trent of, to, to try to actually get get curation sorted that was kind of right but of i i, I think you know it. i don't want to make it about jimmy specifically no. i just didn't think they had it right yeah i didn't think you know there was a playlist company i forget what it, they used to hype me all the time we would know as active listeners we like to pick the tracks yeah, we're yeah. listening to yeah. but we certainly know the past we know the people we know, but the great unknown, yeah. we have no way to go yeah. through. And certainly listening to radio, none of the radio DJ, it's like Apple Beats Radio. They announced that. I haven't heard a person talk about Beats Radio, Beats One Radio in years. Okay. That's just not how people listen. No. But I, like I have a guy in Nashville happens to work for WMA and he sends me what to listen to. And I always listens to everything. And he's always right. Like yeah. 70% I like it, yeah. but I'd like someone who could do it in general. I think, you know, one of the problems is we give everybody a break where in reality, as we discussed, most of the stuff is shit. Yeah. Just tell yeah. me what's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I have an unlimited, don't give me a hundred tracks to listen to. Give me three. Yeah. 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 Okay. So how we do that. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, that's a different discussion. Pete. Okay. Thanks for the illumination. Thank you. Been great. Great to have you here. Till next time. It's Bob Left Sense. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You deserve to treat yourself. So turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 4-14-24 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.